0: Welcome to today's podcast, An Inconvenient Contradiction, Why We Underprepare for Disasters. Our ability to foresee and protect against natural catastrophes has never been greater, yet we consistently fail to heed the warnings and protect ourselves and our communities, often with devastating consequences. In The Ostrich Paradox, Why We Underprepare for Disasters, one professor is Robert Meyer and Howard Conruther draw on years of teaching and research to explain why disaster preparedness efforts consistently fall short. In this podcast, Rainfounder founder David Lawrence interviews Howard, professor of decision sciences and public policy at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and co-director of the Wharton Risk Management and Design Processes Center, on how people and institutions can work with, instead of
1: against, our natural tendencies. David, I'll turn it over to you. Greg, thank you very much, and Howard, a very, very uh, special honor. Uh, First, congratulations on the book. Uh, I know it's been received very, very well, and uh, we have been highlighting it to various members in the network. I thought it might make sense um, to begin with an introduction, and perhaps you could sort of walk us through um, your history, um, the areas that you focused on, and a bit of the history of the Wharton Risk Center, and um, a little bit of the evolution of your thinking and what brought you uh, to write the Ostrich Paradox, and then we can jump into some terrific, uh, specific questions.
0: All right. Well, thank you, David. It's great to be with you, and appreciate all the work that you're doing with RAIN and the important contributions that you're making to our uh, national and global problems, and so I'm uh, delighted that we have an opportunity to have a conversation together. Uh, just to give you a little brief background on, on my own history, but more important, uh, the work that the Wharton Risk Center has been doing, uh, my own training is as an economist, and so I've always been interested in policy and how to deal with it, but I've also been interested in human behavior and how people make decisions so in some sense i was used to be called an irrational economist because i didn't follow all of the norms that economics had in terms of how people should make decisions uh, but now i'm happy to say i'm in the camp of a, as a behavioral economist and i think the work that uh we have been doing at the warden risk center um, and it's the risk management and decision processing center intentionally a long name with a bad difficult to have an acronym. but that's what we are. Uh, We've had our 30th anniversary uh, just a year ago and from the outset we have been focusing on how we deal uh, with low probability, high consequence events like natural disasters or terrorism, uh, ones that don't happen very frequently but when they do are really quite severe and where the decision processes are a particular challenge and the book uh, that Bob Meyer who's co-directing the center with me and I wrote on the ostrich paradox was really an attempt to uh, highlight essentially the challenges that we face and the kinds of biases and simplified decision rules that we use when we are trying to deal with these events both before they happen, when we often don't deal with them, and after they happen, when we actually may uh, take steps that uh, could be uh, better taken, but uh, at least we
1: react to those disasters. That's great, Howard, and uh, I've heard you talk about the fact that the time when people you know buy insurance is often after the event that 's when they 're most likely to buy it and of course that that 's the worst time and they buy, can, they
0: buy it after the event but then three yeah. or four years later when they don 't have a, a, a loss they cancel their policy so there 's a double problem here they buy it too late and then they cancel it too early
1: exactly <laughs> so as as we think about uh, the range of risks and, and uh, there have never seem to have been um, more threats out there, uh, natural man-made disasters. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing, and we see it in Washington all the time, that it does take that crisis moment, sometimes before people focus, even though all the facts, all the evidence, and all the data is in front of them already. And maybe you can unpack a bit of the themes and, and what you've discovered in the course of writing The, uh, the Ostrich Paradox.
0: Uh, happy to do so, and 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 that is exactly the, the point that you made, David. Is exactly the uh, the one that we were operating on. That we really don't focus on these uh, low probability events, these natural disasters, and and also man made disasters until after something happens. Uh, and part of the reason for that is uh, that we have uh, a set of biases uh, that are in the spirit of intuitive thinking, uh, using uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow slow uh, book uh, that we actually uh, cite here because it's, it's important in terms of how people behave and intuitive thinking really means that People are having a set of biases, systematic biases, and I'll go through a few of them if you'd like me to, uh, just to highlight the challenges that we we face here. Um, And then what we are trying to do is not only highlight those biases, but then say how can we deal with them in a better way. So, would you like me to go through some of the biases, or are there some other? I think I think I
1: think that we. No, no, no. I think that's exactly. what we'd like to do, let's unpack the biases and let's also unpack some of the things that can perhaps alter those behaviors. Sure.
0: Well, I'll just go through uh, the, 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 the um, six biases that we highlight in the book uh, and have little chapters on each one of them. Uh, the, uh, the first one is a myopia bias, which is really the, f- the tendency to focus really on the short run. Uh, we really want to get uh, rewards uh, very soon. Uh, there is a lot of, li- of experimental work, and these biases are very well documented in the, li- in the literature and experiments have been done, some of which we've done ourselves. Uh, and uh, the short run means that if you have an investment that has a long-term payoff, uh, like making your house safer, which is uh, something that uh, will last for the life of the house, which could be 25 or 30 years, if you feel that the benefits you're going to get from that investment, uh, are, gonna, you need to capture them in the next two or three years, you may decide not to do them, even though they may be a really attractive option if you reflect it on the longer term. So that's one bias. The amnesia bias. Uh, I just mentioned a moment ago, but let me highlight the fact that we have very short memories on past events, and the idea is that we forget very quickly, and so when we have a disaster that leads us to buy insurance, like a Hurricane Sandy is a good example. Uh, people then were very concerned, or Hurricane Katrina, uh, back now ten or more than 10 years ago. Uh, people really then said, we've got to take steps to protect ourselves, and they would buy insurance. Uh, but then if nothing happened over a few years, they say, you know, this is a very bad investment and I'm gonna cancel my policy. I haven't collected at all. Uh, and that's not a way to look at insurance, but the amnesia bias with the short memories leads them to do that. The optimism bias is related to that in a sense that we look always look for positive outcomes and we always try to see the best in the world. And if you're dealing with a natural disaster, we would prefer not to think about that. Uh, people who live in Florida, uh, are very pleased that they have the the uh, the the warm climate and uh, the sh- the coast for them to swim in, and they don't want to think about a hurricane occurring. Uh, that doesn't make them feel very good. So as a result, they uh, are optimistic it's not going to happen to them. The inertia bias is in a very important one. We tend not to want to move from the status quo. So if we're not taking protection last year, we won't take protection again this year um, unless something happens in the interim. And so. So this notion of not wanting to change is a very common bias we all face because it's costly to, to, to make change and it, there's a lot of uncertainty if you do that. The simplification bias is is important in the sense that we always like to look for a single cause, uh, something to characterize a problem. We don't want to look at anything complicated, which the real world is complicated, but we want to all simplify that. And so uh, that also causes us to forget a number of things that might be important to consider. And Finally, the herding bias, which is a notion to follow what others are doing and just uh, to illustrate in the context of what we've just been talking about, if everyone else around you isn't protecting themselves, why should we do that? Uh, This this is the right thing to do because others are doing it or not doing it and so herding uh, plays a role, but it also opens an opportunity to try to create a social norm for changing behavior.
1: So, Howard, um, I want to go into maybe how we can alter those. Can I, as I read through your book, I thought of another bias, which you would probably subsume into one of the six, uh, which is the assumption bias, which is the assumption that our government is actually prepared or <laughs> can respond or has thought this through. And yet, time and time again, whether it's you know issues around Katrina or Sandy, whether it you know, events that are occurring and portending in the cybersecurity space, issues around nuclear proliferation, et cetera, um, it's not the case. And so how how does that maybe work into one of the six categories, or maybe that's a, you know, 6.1?
0: Well, I, I, I would, and that, and that's a int- very interesting point, David. Let me respond in the following way, that I think people who are in the government have exactly the same kind of biases that individuals have, and I was talking primarily about individuals, all of us who have to make decisions, uh, and firms have those biases as well. So it's not that, it's a, that these others are immune because they're in a different realm. They are in a different realm, but they also tend to actually b- uh, behave that way. And so if the if the government, would li- uh, government officials or organizations uh, would uh, might be a lot happier saying, you know, this is such a low probability event, I'm not going to worry about it. I've got a lot of other things on my agenda. And all of these biases that I just mentioned could apply to them as well. And that is true for firms and it's true for insurers. And we've written a book, in fact, on insurers behaving uh, the, uh, uh, a, a very misunderstood industry, but insurers also behave in that manner.
1: Or grid I can illustrate that if you want me to. Yes, sir, uh, that would actually be terrific.
0: Uh, I'll illustrate that with a very simple example that we have used, and in insurers we've talked to a lot, insurers a great deal about this, and that is on terrorism. Uh, before 9-11, the insurers basically never charged a penny, never separated out the risk, never considered the risk of terrorism as something that was worth separating out and in thinking about how they would price it in their coverage to commercial entities and, and other firms that uh, they were providing uh, insurance to and so uh, that was really essentially free, it was an add-on uh, on uh, coverage that was not excluded from a policy. Uh, after 9/11, uh, almost all the insurers basically said we can't provide coverage anymore. We're concerned about this. Uh, the event has happened. We've had a serious loss, and so many of them discontinued coverage. The couple of insurers who did provide coverage made a fair amount of money because they could charge a very high premium, and people and, and firms would be, uh, for a variety of reasons, want to buy them. Uh, one example of that, that just to illustrate, is that one firm was willing to pay nine hundred thousand dollars for nine million worth of coverage for a disaster to one of their facilities or a terrorism attack over the course of the coming year. And when you calculate the odds that, they were, uh, that, that this implied was like a 1 in 10 chance that, that, disaster, that a terrorist attack would come to their facility, which is extraordinarily high, but they paid that money. But most insurers never offered the coverage. And so as a result of that, we had government coming in because there were firms that absolutely were required to have that coverage uh, for workers' compensation and also for uh, mortgages that they had. And so we had the Terrorism Risk Insurance. Act that that was passed primarily to help the insurers want and uh, to provide coverage it basically indicated to the insurers that uh, they had to offer coverage in return they would be protected against very very large losses which they were concerned about Uh, but it would even have to pay those back uh, after they were uh, the government helped them out so it was a it was a very actually very progressive law in getting the public sector involved but it took 9-11 to ha- for that to happen and the insurers basically behave just like we behave it's not going to happen to me before a disaster it did happen to me I'm going to not necessarily want to offer this
1: coverage anymore all right so a valuable insight about sometimes it takes a crisis and I actually want to come back to these points Howard because it strikes me there's a direct applicability to where we are around cybersecurity uh, the types of uh, attacks that are occurring, the data, and certainly some predictions about we'll call it the existential or infrastructure uh, risk to the country. But let me go back to the, we'll call it the six um, deficiencies in how we approach risk. And you alluded to the fact that these biases exist not just um, in the private sector, but also within the government itself. So. How, how would you begin to approach changes in the behavior, a more efficient model for thinking about preparing for, responding to, and mitigating risk?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, no, I appreciate the question, and that, and that is a very important part of the book. The last part is a behavioral r- risk audit, which says now that we have these biases, how do we overcome them? And as you just alluded, it's something that uh, could be done not only by the indivi- to the individuals, but the government could proceed in that way as well, and, and there'd be an interesting combination of the two uh, units uh, really trying to deal with this problem. So let me illustrate that with um, one example, essentially. Um, and it it, it highlights essentially the optimism bias and and also uh, to some extent the myopia bias. When we uh, say to ourselves, the probability of a disaster is so low, it's below my threshold level of concern, which is kind of what people do. They say it's not worth worrying about uh, because it's a one in a hundred chance that this hurricane is going to occur. And, you know, that's so low that why should I pay any attention? If you stretch the time horizon so that you say to a person, If it turns out that you are thinking about uh, protecting yourself over the life of your house, let's say 30 years, we want you to know that there's greater than a 1 in 4 chance that you'll have at least one hurricane that might do damage to your house over that 30 year period. And so by stretching the time horizon and telling people the likelihood is 1 in 4, Uh, It's the same probability as 1 in 100 if that probability remained the same over each year. With climate change or global warming, it might be even greater than 1 in 4. Then people then will pay attention because that number is high enough for them to think about it. And If you tell them it might be even more than 1, they're even more concerned. And Experiments have been done on that. We've done some and a lot of other people have done experiments. On that issue, and are continuing to do that. But the interesting point uh, of, uh, that I'm raising on that particular uh, way to help correct it is that the Federal Emergency Management Agency uh, has changed the way they present information on the flood hazard now, and that's not. And then w- w- there are a number of groups that have uh, been involved with them, but certainly we have talked with them about this, and they now talk about the fact that instead of a one in a hundred chance next year, which is what they used to do, they now say. Precisely what I said. Remember, there's a greater than one in four chance that uh, there will be a disaster over a 30-year period, and the, the jury is still out on how that has affected the um, uh, flood insurance purchases, but you could do a very simple experiment, which we're planning to do, to think about how people react to one in a and one in, in four and see whether or not there are changes in how people buy it. So that's one example. I can go on with some others, but let me pause here just to perhaps yeah,
1: Let let, let me push back and you're the academic and you have the data and you study and you set up experiments. What I will just tell you from my experience, what we see within the network, giving people that information um, about the probability and why something may be more likely than not still doesn't seem enough to shift behavior. I agree because people resource constrained and I wish it were just a matter of information. I wish it were just a matter of information to the policy uh, heads in Washington. But still, even when that information is there, people don't seem to incorporate it or change their behavior. And whether they still feel that people are overstating it, whether they feel that it will be someone else's responsibility, whether they feel that, the money or the resources are better spent year term, whether they're running a company and they're going to be judged by the quarter, uh, not by what they prepare for for five years down the road. It's still one, one of the great conundrums in my mind, when, uh, and again, not just with man-made, but also natural disasters. When we know things and we know the information is there, we even, you know, some people have access to even more specific and confidential information. So the reality of it, is there. Uh, as, I've, as I've remarked, there's a reason why President Obama's hair turned gray within the first nine months of his presidency. Still, behavior doesn't change, people don't prepare. And so, what else do you think is missing?
0: Well, no, I I really appreciate your asking that because um, this is only one part of, of, I think, uh, the story uh, in terms of how you would change behavior, and you're absolutely right. You can give people information, they're going to say, look, uh, uh, um, I now appreciate that this may be more of a problem, I can't afford it, Uh, I'm not necessarily want to to put in uh, the um, uh, investment on insurance, they see it as an investment because I won't get anything back, Uh, I may be moving in three years, I have budget constraints. A number of things like that enter in people's minds and in firms' minds. And so to complement the notion of presenting information, you need economic incentives in order to be able to do that, and I think that's the point that you're making. Um, Get someone to pay attention because it's worth their while from a financial point of view, and that isn't just a firm. That would be a homeowner as well. So what we we would suggest as part of the behavioral audit is that you have to really address that point very very directly And here would be an example of how one might do that. Uh, the first point is to say to people, we want to give you transparent information on what your risk is. Not only that the, there's a 1 in 100 or 1 in 4 chance over 30 years of, uh, 100 next year or 1 in 4 chance over 30 years of the uh, disaster occurring, but also essentially what it would cost you for an insurance policy if you had a premium that reflected risk, which many insurance premiums are restricted from, uh, many insurance, insurers are restricted from doing so. Uh, for uh, on, on policies they offer and so we would say a first notion is transparency what is the risk and you would then have the insurer who would provide essentially a policy uh, that's a private sector or even a national flood insurance program which is a government program they would indicate here is what your premium is if it reflected risk. They may or may not charge that in terms of how they deal with the affordability issues which I'll come to uh, in a moment, but let's just say that everyone who could afford an insurance premium of that type would be charged that. You would then uh, say, look, we want you to make an investment on making your home and your property safer. Both the firm could do this as well as, as an individual, their home. And we know it's costly because um, it's a high upfront cost to elevate your house or to floodproof your house or make it safer may, requires an upfront cost. And you may say, I'm not going to do that because it's, uh, I'm not going to get enough back in the way of my premium reduction, which you should get and you would get if you did that. But if you, gave that, if you tied that to a loan so that the individual or the, the, uh, the decision maker basically said, you know, I have a loan now, it's tied to my property and I'm gonna be paying a lot less each year to make, get that investment. I'll do it right now, but I'll pay it off over time. Then it's a win-win situation because normally the insurance premium will be a lot lower than the actual cost of the loan annually, and then even if they move, that loan can be either paid off or transferred to the next property owner, etc. and they basically win every year by getting a lower uh, reduction in their premium that is greater than the loan. So that's a direction one would go. And if you couple that with the probability uh, that they then know that this is a very likely event over 30 years, we would say that could address that problem.
1: Those are great, great insights, Howard. I'm going to add maybe if we also give away lottery tickets in exchange for people (laughs) who prepare for risk, we can uh, incentivize behavior. And um, it was with particular interest that I also read your views on simplification and the fact that people have a tendency to oversimplify uh, the issues when they're in fact complex I think we see that by the way in our voting patterns and how people decide on candidates they're looking for sort of easy decisions on issues it's one of the reasons why I think you know uh, cable news uh, such as it is um, has gained in popularity there's a aspect that people segment into Those channels that align with their positions and it sort of makes them easy, it makes it easy and comfortable to hold on to their positions when, in fact, there are a lot of nuanced facts that that need to be considered. But I wanted to actually flip that coin on uh, simplification to the following, which is sometimes the process of managing risk is unduly complicated. So you reach the decision point, this is something that we have to do. And I'll highlight something uh, from our network, which is a uh, one of the world's leading law firms um, with obviously some very, very sophisticated attorneys, but also risk managers. Uh, Reference to us how difficult it was for them to actually uh, obtain a cybersecurity policy uh-huh. that fit their firm, the profile, obviously the premiums. It just took a very, very long time. And also, it took a long time to, to negotiate. And so, maybe you could talk a little bit about who should own the process of making risk management easier. Is it the government? Is it the private sector? Is it a collaboration? Whether it's in terms of, you know, how to raise your house on, uh, you know, ten foot stilts, or We see all sorts of ads in case of, you know, blackouts and and such, uh, or how easy it really is to get blood insurance and why it doesn't have to feel daunting. People can very, very easily feel overwhelmed, even if they know something exists, even if they know there are potential solutions. How do they go about accessing those solutions, obtaining them, and, you know, sort of being able to sort of leverage that and of course look when your neighbor tells you i just got this it's real easy and you see this all the the time you see it online and you see it in real life behavior the ability to have someone guide you into simplicity whether you're booking a hotel room you're buying a car or whatever is often the key to effective uh marketing and effective market share and market penetration and i'm just curious you know sort of what can we do in that area to make risk management easier for enterprises and families and individuals.
0: Well, it's a it's it's a challenging question, and I, I don't have an easy answer to that. But let me give you a couple of thoughts on it, and. Uh, and, and and maybe first address this, the cyber security uh, issue where, with the difficulty that this per, that this firm may have had that you mentioned because I know that's something you've been very concerned and our, 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 we've been very concerned about that uh, certainly from the government point of view and for the world actually, the challenges. And I think the cyber security is, a, is an interesting case where um, people where where we don't have a very good handle on what the nature of the risk is, the likelihood of things happening, and there's a great deal of concern about what the consequences will be if something happens. And insurers are a little reluctant, actually, to necessarily provide coverage uh, because they're afraid if they have a very large loss, and the lo- there may be correlated losses across a number of places, and they they're they're concerned that if they are protecting a number of uh, firms, let's say, <coughs> excuse me. This could be very costly to them. And so one way to deal with it um, is to see whether there's a public-private partnership like terrorism, which is the same kind of concern, (coughs) so that they – Themselves feel that they're protected against a very large loss, which is what happened with the insurers who were concerned about nuclear, or chemical, nuclear, radiological, or biological attacks, which could be very severe. With cybersecurity, you have a similar kind of uh, problem, and so having that kind of protection at the at the very top end of catastrophic loss would enable the insurers to do the job that you're asking for which is to say they could play a very creative role um, in providing information on the nature of the risks that they face and giving people uh, data uh, on that. Now if you take that basic notion of transparency which is so important and here's why the premium is what it is, it's a lot easier for them to do that in the context of natural disasters where we have a lot of data and where one can say to individuals, look we're pushing an insurance policy here because we feel that the relatively small premium you're going to pay would avoid a very large loss and we'll tell you more about what that loss would be if your house was damaged and what you'd have to pay and why you wouldn't get the disaster relief you think you might get which people don't really get today. Uh, if, if you have that loss and you'll have to bear that yourself and I think by that by making that case transparent and it doesn't have to just be the insurer, the real estate agent, the bankers, uh, the, the financial institutions that have the mortgage a lot of these other groups could play a creative role. I think when you do that and try to simplify it by saying here's a worst case scenario here's what the likelihood is of a disaster that is going to occur in the next 30 years so they see this as more likely. Here's the small small premium you pay and uh, look at what you'll get back if there's a disaster um, and you you have insurance. That will go a long way, I think, to convincing uh, someone to protect themselves. And then on the cyber case, if, they, if you have insurers protected, the firm that you're talking about would be able to get coverage then, probably, and they would also understand uh, what they were covered for, and they would and, and the insurer would know that they're protected against the very large loss. Those would be some quick thoughts uh, off the top of my head, but having thought a little bit about that over uh, the last few years uh, that I would say to dealing with this issue of simplification, and, frankly hurting as well
1: that's great Howard and um, you also referenced um, the role of regulation and uh, particularly as you think about public companies uh, even privately held companies that have their investors uh, the focus on the near term the focus on um, driving profits these are often expenses that constitute Overhead, It may be prudent planning, but if things are not happening on a regular basis, they're nice-to-haves rather than have-to-haves. I've heard that you know, on a number of levels. And maybe you can just share with us uh, some of your thoughts about the role of regulations in um, ensuring prudent behavior.
0: Well, I uh, appreciate the question, David. Regulation is critically important for risks which may actually wind up costing all of us a great deal more than we would have thought and where there is what we call uh, externalities, things beyond essentially the individual firm or others that, um, that, that are going to be responsible. The financial crisis highlights that clearly in terms of all of the costs that the government had to bear for dealing with something because things were not regulated enough. And, so, and the same thing would hold, I think, with respect to um, even for natural disasters, uh, what I said was you wouldn't necessarily get a large amount of disaster relief uh, if a natural disaster occurred today. But if you happen to have a natural disaster or a major hurricane in Florida in September of an election year and there was a large loss and no one was protected and no one was insured and you didn't have regulations in place on building codes, which was the case after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, a lot of damage could have been avoided, and those standards were not enforced, you're going to have a large amount of expenditure that the government will come to the rescue at that time because of the political implications of their not doing it, and you want to avoid that, but in general, you want to avoid a set of things that people, uh, whether it's firms or individuals, are not going to pay attention to unless they're required to do it, and it isn't so much paternalism, it's a notion that you really want to let them know that they need to be protected um, and the reason is because if they aren't, they're going to be serious consequences not just to them but to all of the rest of the of, of, of the nation in terms of having to pay for these things in one way or another. So moving to that direction of taking personal responsibility and the same thing would hold for communities uh, and protecting. We, we now have a Stafford Act uh, the of natural disasters that gives uh, 75% re- uh, ret- uh, back to the community if they suffer a loss, there's no incentive for them to do a lot of things beforehand. If you recognize that you want to encourage them to do things and provide them with insurance and they pay for a small premiums, you move away from the notion of helping them after and getting them to be better prepared before.
1: So uh, excellent points, and um, what you mentioned with the Stafford Act is precisely, I'll call it the conundrum, where people assume that they have that backstop, they assume the government will come in, Uh, they'll assume that they don't have to personally prepare either as individuals or on behalf of their enterprises, and yet ignore the broad societal costs of that lack of preparation
0: and they may not get the aid personally Exactly. communities may get it but they may think they're going to get it and they really won't unless you have kind of the event that I just described uh, where there's some political pressure to give them special relief but normally they won't get it but the communities will get it
1: and to underscore that point there is a very very long list of uh, I'll call them uh, people who were victims of Hurricane Sandy who are still waiting for their checks and their reimbursement. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, not to mention the fraud that's committed in the aftermath, Howard, uh, around the uh, reconstruction and repair space. Howard, uh, assume I want to sort of close with this. Um, assume you've been down, you've been invited down to Washington as you have in the past, and assume that there is a uh, new Senate and House bipartisan committee that is uh, entitled um, the risk management committee and their job is to prepare a report on the state of the union in terms of its preparedness for the wide range of natural and man-made disasters what would you be saying to them not just in terms of our state of preparedness but in terms of what the message should be to the American people, and how they can help encourage that that message is not only heard, but acted on.
0: Well, I think I would come back to a few points that I've already made, but um, let me make them again. I think the I'd, first... I'd, like you, I'd like you
1: to, and, and this time with your right hand raised, Howard, because okay, you're under <laughs> oath.
0: Uh, I'm under oath, yes I'm being under oath. First of all, we are underprepared. We are not protecting ourselves the way we should and this will continue until there's a recognition by the Senate and House that we have to do something about that. The way that one needs to get started is to, first, to recognize that and everyone needs to recognize that um, and that there's a consensus. This is not a political issue, this is just a social issue we have to pay attention to. Secondly, that we have these sets of biases Um, that uh, we have written about in uh, The Ostrich Paradox, myopia, amnesia, optimism, inertia, simplification, and hurting, all biases that actually lead us to say we're not going to concern ourselves with this, and the Senate and House has to recognize that, these people who are political leaders, that we have to overcome these biases. And the way one would overcome them is on uh, several dimensions. One is you want to actually provide transparency and let people and let everyone know what the risk is, uh, and then you want to frame those messages in such a way that people will pay attention to them. So that you provide uh, information on likelihood with a longer time frame. You focus on worst-case scenarios and what would happen if you're not prepared, whether it's the individual or the community or the firm. And then you actually say, we uh, need public-private solutions to this problem. Regulations and well-enforced standards and uh, land use regulations in the case of uh, um, natural disasters. Um, uh, Regulations in the notion of being protected with insurance as banks and financial institutions are doing that today. And we need insurance to complement all of that with the premiums that are going to reflect the risk so that people know this is what they should be paying. And then we need the public sector to come involved in two dimensions that are critically important to make this all happen. One is to have backstops on catastrophic losses so that the private insurers actually find themselves in a position that they feel comfortable providing this coverage. And we've talked about that on all hazards cyber uh, insurance being one that is more challenging, but that's been done with terrorism, and it's being done with natural disasters in certain cases, but more could be done. That's the, the, the second point. And the third is, that, uh, that That's the point that the public sector has to be involved in, in dur- terms of protecting against large losses, and they also have to deal with equity and affordability issues and make sure that those who are going to be hurt badly, and this applies to health care, as you mentioned earlier, that is critically important, affordability uh, is critically important. The redesign of the health bill has to recognize that in some way, and public sector involvement is critically important because insurers are not not going to be in a position to do that unless they charge others a much higher premium and that's certainly true in natural disasters and in providing that uh, protection, you'd like to encourage people to, um, and that, yeah, that, that kind of voucher or whatever you would give them on the public sector, you would like individuals to take steps to reduce their risk and that's where requirements like mitigating as a condition for a voucher could play a role. That's what I would do, so that the government has less to pay out. They have more to actually provide protection against. And at the same time, you have the private sector, insurers, and other interested parties like banks, financial institutions, and hopefully real estate people and developers see the wisdom in trying to move away from our short-term biases to long-term strategies that will, at the same time, provide economic incentives so that pe- that everyone will feel they're getting. Getting something back in the short run
1: Howard a terrific um, summation and I'd like to emphasize that uh, one of the themes that you've always spoken about which is that we're all in this together that this is um, not just simply a problem for an individual or an enterprise there are tremendous societal costs this does require the public-private sector collaboration and that in turn requires trust And I I will argue it, in turn, uh, requires uh, leadership. And that leadership has to come from a variety of of circles. Uh, I'm going to commend the book once more to our audience, which is uh, not only very, very insightful, but it is actually uh, very, very user-friendly and uh, certainly something that can be shared with risk managers throughout uh, an enterprise, with the board of directors, et cetera. And with more to come, Howard, I truly look forward to continuing the collaboration with you, uh, your continued insights, and uh, you know, let's let's hopefully we can um, convert the Cassandra syndrome that we have, and that uh, people will start to understand and take seriously, and more importantly, act upon uh, the data and the insights that um, you and others have provided. So, thank you again.
0: Well, thank you, David. I really have enjoyed our interchange here and look forward to staying uh, closely in touch with you and working with you over the coming uh, weeks, months, and years. Okay. Well, more to come. Thank you again, Howard. Take care.